This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. Let's talk about e-scooters, shall we? Because there are six municipalities, including Vancouver and North Vancouver, that are preparing to launch pilot programs for electric kick scooters. But the laws around them still remain unclear. Like, will they be kind of universal? What kind of rules are you going to have to follow? Well, the scooters will be subject to the same rules as e-bikes. But recent case in BC Supreme Court highlighted the fact that we don't really have a good framework to work from in this situation. So we thought, let's talk about that this morning. Joining us, Steve Milishev, who owns Motorino Electric in Vancouver. Glenn Sherman is a board member with the BC Electric Riders Association. Thanks to both of you for being here with us this morning. Thank you. Uh, Glenn, let me start with you. Uh, what, what, is, what are the rules right now if we want to use an e-scooter? Well, if we're talking about an e-scooter that is in the shape of a Vespa-style scooter, um, that would be uh, something that is not uh, particularly regulated at the moment because uh, they are defined as motor-assisted cycles uh, up until recently with the Court of Appeal decision that states that they are not motor-assisted cycles, so they are in a gray area. They're not limited-speed motorcycles. They are generally uh, devices that have um, gas power, and they can go 70 kilometers. The uh, electric bikes we're talking about are limited to 32 kilometers an hour, and uh, where will they be able to be used? That's been thrown into some confusion now, I think, by uh, this recent decision. We know the city is interested in dealing with it. If you look at their Transportation 2040 uh, long-term strategic vision, they talk about the need for um, the province to deal with um, e-scooters and other such devices. But right now, I don't think there's anything in place for them. Right. So the problem is this BC Supreme Court case that talked about e-bikes that said if they, depending on how they look, it will depend on what kind of licensing they need if there's licensing available. Uh, Steve, you own Motorino Electric and you sold the e-bike that was involved in this court case. What kind of e-bike was it? Well, uh, that's that's a very good question because we are selling this type of, uh, of bikes that they, they resemble like Vespa scooters for 18 years, and we have sold thousands and thousands of them, and, and we have never had a problem. Uh, actually, it's, uh, the customers, they like them because they use them as the alternative of their cars. They were using them for commuting, for everyday commuting. That was the main purpose they were buying them from. And... Uh, yeah, so until recently, a couple of years ago, they, they became targeted by enforcement department uh, saying that uh, this cannot be considered as a bicycle because uh, they're too heavy to pedal. They, they just don't look like a bicycle. At least that was the argument. Uh, and um, But uh, in, the la- in the last court decision, was actually expressly said that it's, it's not the look that... Uh, uh, defines them uh, as not compliant, but just the way that they operate. And uh, in our business for so many years, we have been inspected by Transport Canada, by Canada Customs, 
and they've been defined completely legal. And uh, this is where the frustration of our customers is coming from, uh, because they have invested a considerable amount of money for their alternative transportation, right. and they're still in limbo now. Now, Glenn, so the way I'm understanding this then is if somebody is thinking, okay, I'd like to get into either an e-bike or an e-scooter or, or try, basically depending on how it looks, it will depend on what kind of licensing you need or what kind of rules you need to follow. Is that right? Precisely. The regulations that exist now that define a motor-assisted cycle say nothing about the relationship between pedaling and the motor. And the courts keep coming back to an interpretation of the regulations, which suggests that for these devices to be a MAC, a motor-assisted cycle, uh, the motor must assist the pedaling but not supplant it. In other words, the, the pedaling has to be the primary means of propulsion. Well, these are bikes, as Steve points out, that are not designed for that. And uh, people who typically might not want to get into a, a, a car but are really not able to bicycle uh, for multiple reasons, possibly respiratory ailments or right. knee problems, and or, or they might be differently abled persons. You know, they, they want some kind of option that doesn't involve getting into a car. Uh, these kinds of uh, bikes were an excellent option. They are stable. They can stop on a dime. They don't go more than 32 kilometers per hour. So where should they be used? That's the challenge that I think uh, governments, both at the provincial level and at the municipal level, have to have to tackle. They're tackling right. it for these stand-up scooters, but we need something to deal with these different kinds of e-bikes. Right. So if you have an e-bike, then you're treated more like a car. But if you have an e-scooter, you're treated more like a bike? Well, uh, it seems like the stand-up e-scooters are going in the direction of being treated like bikes because, um, you know, they'll have to take a close look at how safe they might be in bike lanes and whatnot. But we need something to regulate how these uh, Vespa-style scooters or the XMR-style bikes that maybe look a little more like a like a lightweight motorcycle, but they are not. As such, they are actually um, uh, powered by a 500 watt electric motor and cannot go more than 32 kilometers per hour. Uh, they're a good option for a lot of people, but right now they're not. Uh, they're in kind of a gray zone. Okay, this sounds so complicated. I can understand that. So you clearly need the government to spell out what the rules are, right? Like we, we're, it sounds like we're falling behind, Glenn. Well, it might be that, you know, for instance, there's no weight class assigned under the current regulations. So what we would expect to see is, is government regulation that defines the specific type of bike, perhaps, you know, 70 to 100 kilometers or kilograms uh, max, uh, something that would define uh, right. the size of the motor, et cetera. And that, and where they could be used, uh, we think they could be used in uh, protected bike lanes. We think they could be used on bike routes, but um, you know th they would be a class of uh, device that is 
doesn't require insurance, uh, but might be closer to um, regulation as to, uh, you know, health, use of helmets and right. other such things. Okay, sounds complicated. But listen, thanks to both of you for being on and explaining it to us this morning. Thanks very much. Appreciate Thank that. You. That's Glenn Thank Sherman, you. board member with the BC Electric Riders Association, and Steve Milishev, who's the owner of Motorino Electric, sold this e-bike. So that's how kind of behind we have gotten in terms of regulating these things. If you have an e-bike, they treat it more like a car. But if you have an e-scooter, sounds like you're able to follow the bicycle rules. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about our housing supply. We know that when it comes to immigration, we expect a lot more people to arrive here over the next few years. The pandemic has, of course, put a stop to a lot of that. But theoretically, Canada is hoping to bring something like 1.2 million permanent residents into the country over the next three years. Now, think about that in terms of our housing supply, right? We already have quite the crunch out there. So are developers looking to, you know, launch a whole bunch of new projects in anticipation of that demand? Well, joining us now to talk about that short to medium term strategy right now is MLA Canada Executive Director Cam McNeil. Hi, Cam. Good morning, Simi. How are you? I'm good, thank you. So are developers gearing up for this? Because this sounds like we're going to have to deal with this when this pandemic is over very quickly. Yes, absolutely. And um, obviously immigration, as you uh, just mentioned, was a, a major driver, but really the development community was, was, was waiting for consumer confidence to come back. Those, those fundamentals of immigration uh, are, are really important to, to, um, to our regional growth, and the development community has been planning for that. But um, we, we were in quite a slump in 2017 and 18, and much of that came from uh, initiatives the provincial government took, and, and, and that created um, uh, just some fear and some uncertainty in the market. So it felt be held back, and, and the consumer was, was also uh, was cautious for a time. And as you recall, about a year ago, it started with the single-family market coming back strong, and then now the, the uh, multifamily, the condominium market, has come back very strong as well. And as a result, the development community has been ready and responding to that and bringing projects forward. But a lot of developers kind of pressed pause when the pandemic started, which I always thought was a mistake, because sooner or later, this is going to be over and they're going to be behind. So are we not now behind in getting all this stuff started? Yes, you bet. Um, uh, no one knew exactly what was going to happen when, when COVID first first hit and and how that would show up with respect to our economy or, or people's buying behavior. Of course, these large projects, many of them take many years before they're completed from the the moment they're first offered for sale. And uh, so the development community needed confidence to know that when they brought these projects forward that they would actually sell. And so you're absolutely right. There was um, a pause for the, the first half of this pandemic. And then late last year is when the um, the resale market was, was obviously in full gear and the development community started to bring projects back. And when they started to see success with those with those new projects being offered for sale, um, of course, it was a domino effect and more developers started bringing projects forward. And, and we're going to see a lot of that uh, happening in the next 12 months. Forward. Yeah, but how long? I mean, a lot of these take forever, right, to get through to sure the do. approval process. So yeah. if, if we're saying, yeah, they're in a rush today, what, what kind of timeline are we talking about here? Like three years, five years until this thing is a project is done? That's about uh, the right timeline, uh, Simi. If, if a developer has not ready uh, to have a permit, and, or rather the project is not, ready to go today and they're going through the process that could take 
a year to two years, even before they get the approval to 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 offer that to the uh, community. And then, of course, sales happen, and then it could take two to three years to build a project. So, it's you know, if they're not ready to go today, it's closer to five years in in more most cases. Um, many projects, though, when they were put on hold, they at least had they were still moving forward with with going through the permitting process. And um, thank goodness for for technology because the the approval process was still able to happen um, through digital formats. The city um, planning departments and and municipal processes were still were still at least moving forward. So um, although it was interrupted, it was it was not completely paused. And so many developers were ready to go. So we were able to see those projects right. um, being offered this fall. And, and very quickly, spring. Cam, can you give us an idea of what kind of projects are we talking about? I don't think people want the micro condos anymore. They want some space. Yeah, they do. And um, we definitely have seen that shift, which is, which is very exciting. And it's not just the uh, space. I guess it's opening up new geographies. The Fraser Valley has seen its strongest year ever in history. Um, some of the, the secondary um, markets, such as uh, Squamish, for example, are, are really benefiting from people having greater flexibility to be working from home. Right. And um, and yet, when the immigration numbers start to really flow back, um, which they're expected to do, and you know, as soon as um, the, the airports start opening up, and we're going to see this real strong surge of immigration, that's going to come back into right. filling our traditional areas. Oh, it's fascinating stuff, Cam. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much, Simi. Cam McNeil's the Executive Director with MLA Canada talking about the short and medium-term strategy for developers right now. And it sounds like, no matter what you want to call it, we're still looking at three to five years, right, before they can get some projects going. And if it does get busy, you can expect that housing crunch to continue. This is Mornings with Simi. Talk about an interesting legal challenge that really could change all the laws around sex rights in Canada. And it was launched earlier this week. So, at the heart of this particular issue is whether or not sex work should be considered exploitative. Jen Clayman is a national coordinator with the Canadian Alliance for Sex Work Law Reform and joins us now to talk about this legal challenge. Jen, thanks for being here. Of course. What brought this about? Um, well, you, it's actually interesting. You just said that at the heart of the issue is whether or not sex work is exploitative, and that's not actually what's at the heart of the issue. <laughs> the heart of the issue, of, at the issue is um, wh- whether or not sex workers' rights are actually being respected by the law. And so this, the, the reason that this case came about is because um, for, for decades now, um, sex workers' charter rights, so rights that are afforded to people um, living in Canada, are not actually respected by the sex work laws, and they contravene a lot of sex workers' charter rights. And that is something that we've been um, putting forward to government for a very long time. So despite how people actually feel about sex work, um, sex workers' rights to security and rights to safety and rights to personal autonomy are actually being contravened by the laws that exist. So how does this legal challenge propose to deal with this? Um, well, the legal challenge is basically, we're challenging the laws, so basically suggesting that the laws should not exist on the books and, and shouldn't, sex work should not be considered criminal um, and instead should be considered um, work um, and that sex workers' rights should be respected in that work. So are there, is this the case everywhere though, Jen? It feels like this is an argument that has been made and gained traction quite yes. a bit, right, in the last <laughs> 10 years. Yeah, I mean, so sex work laws are federal laws, so they apply to everybody across the country. So the case is starting within one province, as it needs to do, but hopefully we, we hope to make our way up to the Supreme Court, like the Bedford case did um, and, the, and ended in 2013. Um, so this is not, these, these claims are not new, and these arguments are not new. Sex 
workers have been targeted for violence uh, for for decades, um, and sex workers' rights have been violated for decades. And it's we're, we gain traction more and more within the public and on the Bedford case as well, because the Bedford case, the Supreme Court of Canada unanimously ruled that the prostitution laws at the time were unconstitutional, and yet the Conservative government at the time just ushered in a whole new set of laws that reproduced those criminalizations. So it's interesting, because I was actually just reading an article from 2015 where each of the parties, the Liberal, the NDP, and the Green Party, say and commit to repealing the current laws on the books and recognize them as not protecting sex workers. So there's a lot of chatter from this government, but very little action. Right. So Because that's what I remember, too. I thought, well, wait a minute, I thought we had, had been dealing with this yeah, issue. I know. <laughs> so is it one of those things right. that the politicians like to talk about, but they don't they actually do. do anything. Yeah, exactly. They talk a lot. And that's one of the problems is that a lot of marginalized communities um, really go without support from this particular government and from all governments, I would argue, throughout time. But this particular government is very lazy when it comes to actually respecting and protecting the rights of marginalized communities, particularly communities that occupy public space, Indigenous women, um, Black women, trans women. Um, and so th- this government plays a lot of lip service to human rights and to feminism, but does very little in action. So we hope that by going to court, um, we have a stronger position with which the government has to actually respond. So if you can do that then, if you can say sex work is not criminal, what does that open up then for women? Oh, wow. Um, well, for one, and probably most importantly, it would mean that sex workers are a little bit less stigmatized and less targeted for violence. And so the criminality around sex work actually makes it so that sex workers are framed as perfect victims for violence, for people who are seeking out people who are um, vulnerable, not able or not willing to go to police or any sort of institution or service um, in need of help. It means that sex workers can access um, different social, legal um, and medical services with less dis- discrimination or expectation of less discrimination. Um, it means that sex workers have access uh, to jobs, um, to, to more economic empowerment. Um, you know, we take for granted that when you're living and working in the context of criminality, that you're considered outside of the social project. And yeah. so it really uh, lends itself to a different world for sex workers where eventually uh, sex workers can be open about what they're doing and not expect to be targeted for a lot of the violences that sex workers experience. Has the pandemic made these kinds oh, of reforms? even more critical? Oh, absolutely. Criminalization has been one of the biggest challenges standing in the way of sex workers receiving some financial support. So the um, the CPU, I don't know, sorry, I'm saying it in French, but um, the uh, the money that was offered, the $2,000 that was offered to a lot of Canadians um, was not necessarily an option for sex workers who were out of a job because businesses were closed, but because many sex workers don't want to be known to the public or can't be known to the public um, because they might have other jobs as well and they might risk losing those sort of quote-unquote straight jobs, um, but they might lose, risk losing their children, they don't necessarily want to let the government know they're working in the sex industry. So many sex workers did not apply for that money. So criminalization really exacerbated a lot of the conditions that sex workers are living and working in. Is there any way that they are provided assistance? It seems like lots of other industries are getting assistance. Through COVID? No, no, absolutely not. Sex workers have been left out completely in the cold. And we've been we've been trying really hard, or we had been at least working with trying to, to implore and speak to government. Um, Minister uh, Ministry of Wage, um, for example, you know, Maria Monsef's office and Justin Trudeau's office trying to explain to them that we need some kind of income supports for sex workers, but they weren't particularly interested in doing more than offering sex workers, offering organizations means of giving sex workers $100 gift cards, which really just maintain sex workers in cycles of poverty. So it was very clear that this sort of balancing of power or 
shifting of power or enabling sex workers to live in safety and in health was not particularly interesting or interest, yeah, interesting for this government. Okay, so then what are the next steps here, Jen? Well, the next steps are we go to court and, um, and, we, and we provide evidence and then people recognize yet again that sex workers' rights are not being respected. We could save a whole lot of money and a whole lot of time if the government now just introduced a bill for decriminalization, which would mean, again, removing the criminal laws around sex work and relying on laws of general application to deal with violence when it does arrive in sex workers' lives. So they could do that right now, the government. Lots of work to do. Jen, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That is Jen Clayman, National Coordinator for the Canadian Alliance for Sex Work Law Reform. I can't tell you how many years we have talked about this. And as Jen and I were saying, uh, probably 10 years off and on, I keep thinking, oh, yeah, we're going to make progress on that front. And then nothing ever seems to happen. So I can understand the frustration on that. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, it has been a bit of a premature end to the ski season at a couple of resorts. Whistler, of course, announcing the end of their 2021 season. And then Big White also announced they're going to close early this year. And boy, they've seen a lot of ups and downs at Big White, especially this week. So joining us now is Michael J. Ballingall, Senior Vice President at Big White Ski Resort. Michael, thanks for being back with us. Yeah, Simi, I'm probably the only person on your show or listening to your show with my ski boots on this morning. Yeah, you probably are, too. Listen, it's been quite the up and down week for you. How are you doing? Yeah, fine, thank you. It, you know, it's, uh, it, it's been a challenging year, to say the least, but our, our job is, uh, is really, uh, it gives back to us because we're in the entertainment business, we're in the adventure business. Um, people had a great time out on the mountain yesterday. They're going to have another great time on the mountain today. And, uh, and then we have the Easter long weekend, which the locals will be here in, uh, in a great deal of numbers. Well, yeah, let's talk about that. How are you dealing with the COVID-19 precautions and when is everything closing down? Um, we're, our last day will be, we'll, we'll spend the last lift at four o'clock on Monday. Um, we decided to close because we, we had just an, an unprecedented influx of inquiries to come to the resort um, literally the, the week after uh, Easter. We would have been the last resort open in in western uh british columbia revelstoke has now announced that they're closed for the season sun peaks and silver star are closing after uh the easter long weekend and with whistler closing which is you know one of the finest uh, ski resorts anywhere in the world there's just a number of people that love the passion of skiing and snowboarding and with us being open they they were uh not adhering to the uh travel restrictions and they were trying to book into our resort and so what do you tell them when that happens well, we're, we're, we're lucky. We're one of the only lift companies in Canada, really, that has an accommodation sector attached to it. We control between 50 and 60 percent of the commercial beds on Big White. And so when you call our 1-800 number, you have a, a, a choice between six, 700 rooms. And if, you, if you're a 604 number, if you give us an address uh, in the lower mainland outside 150 kilometers, we simply say sorry and, and we can't accept your booking at this time because... It's against the provincial health officer's travel restrictions order. And, and people are understanding of that. But what we found was they hung up from us and they went online and they found an R, uh, VRBO or uh, owner direct booking or uh, Airbnb. And, uh, and we've seen this all year long. And, yeah. But it's been in numbers um, that, that weren't... That were manageable. You know, that, that, well, they were manageable, but we weren't afraid of those numbers. Right. Um, but when you're the only resort left open and the locals have had enough, uh, we were starting to see the resort fill up with uh, people from outside the area. 
Okay, and tough week. That video came out, Michael. What what did you think when you first saw that video? What kind of reaction did you have? Well, the, the first call came at seven o'clock that night before the video came out. Um, two staff members from from the actual Charlie Victorias went to our front desk. We control that hotel that the that the uh, the, the bar is in, and uh, they asked us to call the RCMP because the, the the room was simply out of control. That there there was no one on the door. There was no one. Uh, checking ID. There was no one uh, uh, contact tracing, taking your phone number, people dancing on tables. I mean, look, it was a good old-fashioned, a prey ski party at a ski resort. And in non-COVID times, um, these things happen, and they happen with great success. This was just simply the wrong time to be doing this. And, uh, and we called the RCMP, and the RCMP showed up some two hours later, but by then the party had died down and people had moved on. But the video went viral, and uh, and we took switch, very swift action to uh, to terminate the lease of of the proprietor. Right, and the proprietor has apologized. I was reading that uh, online. Does that change anything? Like, have you talked to him personally? I haven't personally talked to him. Our our legal team has communicated through emails. He's a he's an upstanding young man. I mean, he, they, they ran a very very good operation, but you know, they're, they're, the 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 fragrant disregard for um, for public health. You know, this is the one thing that. That, that is really on our mind every day that we run this resort. And the numbers and the science of COVID-19 are proving that this, this variant is, is spreading. And, uh, and, and we just couldn't have this. You know, the, the people weren't seated. They were moving from table to table. He was in breach of liquor uh, uh, policies, uh, WorkSafe BC policies, and, and, and quite frankly, policies uh, as part of his lease. And, you know, it, it uh, forgiveness... It is something that we, 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 we do, but uh, this is the first time we've ever had to terminate a lease, but we thought the infraction was serious enough to terminate the lease. And what about some of the employees who were at that party? What has happened there? Well, we've had to uh, let go of a few employees. And, and really, the, the, the reason, you know, it, 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 it's rare that this is ever done, but I can't have you coming back to work if you were in that establishment, because now we're working with interior health. I mean, this could turn into a super spreader event. There were people in that room from outside of Big White that had traveled to the resort. The DJ from Perth, Australia had just been to Whistler and brought six friends with him. You know, the, oh we, we're, we're very nervous about that. And we're now dealing with interior health to put a fence around the people that were there. We can't have them coming to work. They, they were certainly in breach of their social contract that they have with us. They're only supposed to be staying in the family bubble that they live with. And, uh, and the employees were very understanding. Plus, with, the, you know, with only a, a short time in the season to go, um, most of our employees are now starting to move on to other resorts and other uh, tourism and hospitality uh, jobs. All right. Well, here's to next year, Michael. Hope it's a better season for everybody. <laughs> yeah, and I just hope to you and all your listeners, stay safe out there. There, there's, you know, we can we can help curtail this if we do the right thing. All right. Thank you so much for your time. You're very welcome. It's Michael, uh, Michael J. Bellingall, Senior Vice President at Big White Ski Resort. I have no words for the kind of stupidity that Michael just described there. That the DJ at that party at Big White. Uh, had come from Australia, been in Whistler, and then brought six friends with him to this party at Big White. Whistler, where they are in the midst of a huge outbreak to the point where they are vaccinating everybody in Whistler to try to get a hold of community transmission. 
who does that? That's why we are in this situation. Who behaves like that? Just unbelievable how people don't have any common sense about this kind of stuff. This is Mornings with Simi. Lots of chatter on social media these days about comparing our vaccine rollout, particularly here in BC, to what we see happening in Washington State. In Washington State, they're about to start vaccinating anybody over the age of 18. Anybody can go and get that shot. And of course, we are still waiting uh, to really get our, our population fully vaccinated the way they've already gone ahead and done it, sounds like, down there. So we're waiting for vaccines, as we have been for months, and the ones that we're getting still aren't coming quickly enough to stem the tide of new cases. So what can we expect in the next little while in terms of vaccine delivery? Well, let's talk to the Federal Minister of Public Services and Procurement, Anita Anand, about all of that. She joins us now. Thank you very much for being here. Oh, thank you for having me, Sue. Can I start off by asking you about the Johnson & Johnson vaccine? When can Canada expect to get some of that? Uh, Well, we are going to see deliveries beginning uh, towards the end of April, beginning of May. And uh, just to go back to your original comment uh, as you let off the show, I want to make clear that we have over 11% of Canadians that have received at least one shot. And as a country that does not have, at the current time, domestic production of vaccines, uh, we are bringing in record numbers of vaccines. 9.5 million vaccines prior to the end of this week will be in Canada and 44 million vaccines prior to the end of June alone. Uh, So we are still making up uh, a lot of ground and uh, the federal government will continue to bring vaccines into the country. For B.C., one million doses have been delivered to the province already and 200,000 doses are going to be delivered in the coming days. Are you confident of the supply over the next few weeks? I understand the reason for the question, given what the country experienced because of Pfizer's retooling of its plant in Perth, Belgium, earlier in the year, but the supply chains have stabled considerably for Canada. Uh, we, as I said, received uh, will receive 9.5 million doses in this country prior to the end of this week, and that's 3.2 million alone for this week. We're going to be seeing uh, 1 million doses from Pfizer every week for the month of April and May, and then 2 million a week for the month of June. What I have done is work with my team to accelerate doses. So this week we announced 5 million additional doses of Pfizer coming in the month of June, which allows us to give that 44 million doses prior to the end of June, and which is enough for every Canadian to have at least one shot. So I'm curious, and like how flexible are the contracts? Or every time you would like to speed something up, do you have to go back and renegotiate that? Well, of course, our negotiations continue every single day with these companies. I'm continually pressing them for earlier and earlier deliveries. We have moved up at least 17 million doses into the second and first quarter of this year as a result of the negotiations. Uh, So that's the work of my department and me every single day. We've got to move up those doses and our contracts are flexible enough to allow us to do that. Um, I just spoke with J&J yesterday in particular on this very issue, pressing them for a delivery schedule, and uh, we'll continue to do that with our suppliers in the interest of Canadians and getting vaccines here as soon as possible. So is there still more AstraZeneca arriving as well? Uh, Of course, we do have uh, a diversified portfolio of vaccines, which means we have multiple contracts with multiple 
companies. Uh, for AstraZeneca, we have a contract with them for 20 million doses. 1.5 million arrived from the United States just a couple of nights ago, and those doses are being distributed to the provinces and territories now. Um, we also have a deal with the Serum Institute for the AstraZeneca COVID Shield vaccine, uh, and that's 2 million doses. So in total, that's 22 million doses of AstraZeneca. But we have a very heavily weighted portfolio with Moderna and Pfizer as well. We're going to be receiving in total 44 million doses of Moderna and 40 million doses of Pfizer. So those are the workhorses in Canada's uh, portfolio of vaccines. Um, but as I said, it's diversified. That means we're pulling from multiple companies, multiple locations, right. to bring vaccines here as soon as possible. Yeah, you mentioned 44 million by the end of June, which will give everybody a first dose. When can we expect everybody to have that second and final dose if they need it? Uh, we expect that to be the end of September. Um, if all goes well and Things are very stable at the current time, but we have to watch these supply chains very carefully. We are seeing vaccine nationalism take hold in various jurisdictions around the world, and that requires us to be very vigilant, very prudent, and on top of this file. So I'm working across government with my counterparts, Mary Ng and Mark Garneau, um, to make sure that our doses are leaving Europe on schedule. And that is, again, the work of our government every day. Yeah, was that, uh, that's a tough one, right? Because we have to make, and I know there has been vaccine nationalism talk in Europe as well. Has that been a contentious point? Well, of course, uh, we are seeing countries uh, scrambling for vaccines. Everybody wants the same product from a handful of suppliers. And that's why it is very, very significant that Canada is able to get vaccines out of Europe and into the arms of Canadians. Uh, as I said, we expect over 110 million doses to be here in Canada by the end of September, cumulatively and that is going to be enough for every Canadian to have two doses uh, who wants one. Have you had to do the occasional reminder, perhaps, to some allies to say, hey, you know, it's Canada, we are an ally, You don't let this affect us? Well, I think that it's really important to note that Canada has uh, been able to work collaboratively with countries and uh, companies around the world to ensure that we are getting a stable supply of vaccines. Our negotiations with the United States, for example, was one of the reasons that we were able to get 1.5 million doses of AstraZeneca into this country this week. And I want to say that we are leaving no stone unturned. We are not only negotiating on the basis of our current contract with companies, uh, the seven suppliers with whom we have deals. Uh, we are also reaching out to individual countries like the United States to ensure that we can pull vaccines wherever we are able to do so. And we will continue to be aggressive with our diversified portfolio of vaccines approach, working with our ambassadors in the particular countries and making sure vaccines get here as soon as possible. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time this morning. Thank you, Simi. I look forward to talking to you again. Yes. That's Anita Anand, Federal Minister of Public Services and Procurement, talking about our vaccine situation, Johnson & Johnson, imminent. Uh, But they do feel confident that by the end of June, 44 million doses will have arrived here. That is enough to vaccinate everyone in Canada at least once. And then by September, they say um, enough for everyone to have had the second dose. This is Mornings with Simi. 
National standards for long-term care became a hot topic, right? When the pandemic began, we've continued to discuss this issue. Well, now a new committee has been launched to determine what those standards should be. But, I mean, it's such a huge question. Where do you even start? Well, let's ask Professor Pat Armstrong. She is a distinguished research professor of sociology at York University with extensive experience researching long-term care. Pat, thank you for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. So where should we start? Well, as report after report after report has said, we have to start with staffing. We need more staff, including reports out of BC have made that very clear. But we've been saying that for years. It's time now to act on it. It's no mystery. We need more people to provide care. And they need the the kind of training and preparation that's required, which is continuous, just like I have to do in teaching. I have to continually learn. Uh, so I was wondering, so do you, once you have this, do you have to set a minimum number of people who should be on staff for how many patients? Yes, for how many residents in long-term care. Uh, we have lots of research indicating uh, for two decades ago that said we should have at least four hours of work to care per resident per day. That's not for each individual resident, of course, it's the overall average. But since then, the needs of residents has increased enormously, and so newer research says that should be more like six hours. Right, so what, what, what kind of increase in the number of workers are we talking about here, Pat? Like, how many people would we need to hire to make that happen? A lot. Yeah. <laughs> and we'd have to educate a lot. BC has a, a 3.6 hour minimum that is supposed to be met now. It's not clear if it is being met and it's not clear if that's worked hours or not. So, so just increasing it from 3.6 to 4 would be a significant increase, no question. And it would cost more money, that's true, but we can see the cost of not providing that care in terms of the deaths and illnesses that have been the result mm-hmm. in long-term care during COVID. You talked about training there too, right? So where do we have enough facilities to train that many employees? Oh, I think that there are enough spaces. I hope we don't think that they can all be trained online uh, in terms of providing personal care. So we we do need that personal contact. But yes, I think we do have enough spaces to prepare people in terms of academic institutions. And there's certainly people available to be hired to teach people in those places. So is it just about staff or are there other things that we need to implement? Well, it's also about the working conditions. And again, this has become evident during COVID to some extent an increase in pay has been provided for many of the people who work in long-term care, uh, restriction to working in one site, which means providing people with the opportunity for more full-time work. Right now in my province of Ontario, the latest data indicate that less than half of them have full-time jobs, and most of them would like to have full-time jobs. The other thing is, is that we, by providing more staff, you make it a more pleasant place to work, so that too would improve working conditions. And also, if you have fewer part-time people that you're working with, it's easier to operate as a team, it's easier to respond to the individual needs of residents to get to know the residents. It's a lot harder if you've got three part-time jobs. 
So the way you describe it there, though, Pat, I mean, it sounds like a fairly simple and straightforward thing is that we need to hire more people. So why doesn't that happen? Well, I think that it takes political will. I think that we've had lots of reports indicating that and commissions indicating that after a crisis and then we forget about it in the crisis. I think none of us want to think about going into long-term care. Certainly lots of my friends say it. I'm not going into one of those places. Um, But people don't plan to go into them. There are lots of reasons why you would need care of this sort. The people who are there have really complex needs. They require 24-hour care. Very few of them could be looked after at home uh, in any reasonable kind of way. So we have to start thinking of these as places that we might go and be willing to put the investment in to make them as good as they can be. That changes everything, though, doesn't it, Pat? Just when you tell people that, like, think about where you would like to be in your age. Yeah, we used to ask people, um, where would you like your mother to be? But I think now we we need to be asking, where would you like to be and what would you like it to look like? I think people would have a definite different reaction to that if they did. Are you confident that this time we've learned our lesson that we actually will implement some changes? Let's say I'm hopeful, not confident. (laughs) I I think we have to keep up the pressure. Too often there's been a crisis. We do some tinkering and things go back to the way they were. We need to do some fundamental change, especially in terms of staffing and working conditions, before people can bring joy to both the lives of those who live there and those who work there. And and also, I would say, to the families, because families are really a critical component. And families have been suffering during yeah. COVID uh, in many ways, too. That is so true. Uh, Pat, thank you so much for your time on that this morning. You're welcome. Good luck. Well, good luck to you, too. That's Pat Armstrong, Distinguished Research Professor of Sociology at York University with extensive experience researching long-term care. We've started the process of coming up with some national standards, but will we actually go through with it? That is the big question. This is Mornings with Simi. 1,013. That is our highest ever single day increase in new cases. And that's what we have been hearing from uh, BC health officials. We had been in a holding pattern of around 500 cases a day. It went on for weeks like that. I don't know, maybe it lulled people into a sense of security. I don't know. But now it certainly seems like we are going in the wrong direction. So let's talk about modeling these numbers. Where do we go from here? What can we expect in the next few weeks? Joining us now is Daniel Coombs, a UBC professor in mathematics. Good morning, Daniel. Good morning. I guess those numbers really make everybody do a double take. What did you think when you heard them? Uh, I, I have to say, on actually, on last week, uh, on on uh, sorry, this, this week even on Monday, we were having a meeting in the morning before the weekend numbers had been released and we were speculating as to what they would be. And I, I was actually a little too high. So I, I'm not terrifically surprised that we hit a thousand um, um, uh, at some point this week. And uh, the, the thing that's concerning at the moment is, is from a case's point of view is, is that it, it, there doesn't seem to be any clear reason why we would expect the numbers of cases uh, alone to, to to turn around at, at any uh, you know in, in, in the next in the next, certainly in the next uh, couple of weeks. Right. So you're saying there's nothing to be to look forward to in terms of the curve actually bending. 
Right. So, I mean, you know, we're, there's a lot going on at the moment, and it, it, it was difficult to uh, to put all the pieces together. I think now we have a clearer picture over the last few days. Um, we, we've seen the B117 variant, the so-called UK variant, um, which which has been in the province uh, for months now, but at low levels. Um, but we we knew from the experience around the world that once that variant became fully established, it would it would be very likely that it would grow. Much rapidly, you know, it, w- it would be able to, to lead to a growth in case numbers, um, even when the strains that we had in BC already uh, were not able to. Um, then on top of that, you have BC's um, vaccination program, which is, uh, it, it, my impression, is, is going extremely well. Um, I know there have been some teething problems, but just the, the numbers of people getting the shot, uh, and especially vulnerable people and high contact people getting the shot. And so that will start to um, potentially impact, um, you know, uh, so some of the numbers uh, going forward, but it was always a question of timing. I think the timing is resolved um, with the information over the last few days. And, uh, you know, basically the B117 strain is here and it's, it's in a sense winning the race, even though yeah. I think, I think in, in the long run, it's, it's, I mean, it's obviously it's going to lose as we get more and more vaccinations out into the population. Oh, we hope, right? So, but look, knowing what you know and the work that you do in modeling disease, given the fact that we also just had spring break, right? This is the first week back after spring break. What do you expect for the next couple of weeks? Um, it's, it's maybe a little early to say uh, whether, whether there'll be a noticeable spring break bump. Um, certainly the models that I've seen on this point, and there's a number of people um, you know, with the with the establishment of the new strain, that's really the dominant factor at the moment. Um, and and you know, in other places, we've seen doubling times. You know, for, for numbers of cases uh, in the sort of week to ten days range um, in European countries and, and other jurisdictions. And so, you know, if that's the dynamic that's going to be setting in now, it wouldn't be surprising to see you know cases could potentially double again within within another week or two. When do you think we will start to see some progress? If, if we keep the restrictions in place and the vaccinations keep up, when do you see perhaps some light at the end of the tunnel here? Um, I just want to emphasize that, you know, cases are one thing and, and there are other numbers that we need to look at, hospitalizations, intensive care admissions and deaths. And, you know, we, we've seen the deaths have dropped precipitously in, in D.C. Uh, following following the vaccination. But but just, just getting back to cases... Um, the, the impact of vaccination, I, I think we're looking, you know, it, it, it could potentially be a, be a bit of a, a difficult ride um, going forward, um, you know, six weeks to, to two months. And there's uncertainty on that. It's difficult to, this is, there's, so, there's so many parts in play that to, to build a, a good model of this is, is not an easy thing at this point. I can imagine. Is that because there's so much of human fallibility, human behavior involved in this? Human behavior, um, the vaccinations, you know, last week, um, essential workers were being vaccinated with AstraZeneca. This week, um, people 55 to 65 are now able to sign up for that vaccination. There's a delay before the, you know, if you take a vaccine, you're not instantly immune. It takes um, a few weeks. And and then also questions around how much do the vaccinations reduce transmissibility? It seems to be a lot, but it's not 100%. And uh, if you if you roll all these uncertainties together, um, you know I, I'm as I think I said to you a couple of weeks ago, I'm 
are very optimistic about where we'll be by the end of the summer. It's just uh, the, the, the route of how exactly we get to that point is not totally clear. Right, because like I've been reading about what's been going on in the UK, in the United States. I mean, they have much higher vaccination rates, but they're still having problems. Oh, yeah. Um, it's it's going to take, um, you know, a, a lot of vaccines are going to have to be delivered. We're, we're you know, we're... We're doing really well. I think, you know, the province has been distributing, you know, the main thing is just to get the shots into the arms. Um, and, you know, as the vaccines have been coming in, they've been going out and being used on a, on a rapid basis. We vaccinated the most vulnerable people first. There was this emphasis on essential workers with AstraZeneca, which, you know, I understand, I'm sure logistically it's very challenging as, as they change to try to try to keep in line with the recommendations uh, from the from the national group. Um yeah, there's a, there's a lot going on, and we will. But I, I, I'm very confident there's light at the end of the tunnel. If you look at the experience um, uh, of Israel, the UK is doing. You know, UK has had a tough time. Um, the UK is doing better at this point as well. Right, but still, like, still having these measures in place, I think is in places like the UK has been frustrating because I think they probably feel like, listen, we're vaccinated. Why do we need all this stuff? But it is important to keep all of that up, right? For now, absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah, my, my parents are in the UK. They were vaccinated months ago now. Um, and um, yeah, they've still been extremely, you know, all the advice is, is still, you know, be very cautious and, um, you know, be, be as careful as you can. And, and you're not allowed to drive far away from your house. And, you know, there are restrictions on who you're allowed to see and so on. Yeah. So when this is all over, Daniel, like perhaps at the end of this year, beginning of next year, when things are starting to get back to normal, what what do you want to look back on and, and study? Like to you, what has been the, that, that part of it that will go into your research? <laughs> I'm just thinking about the vacation I might take. But, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, I think one thing that's really been thrown into into sharp con- sharp contrast here is is we need to understand how different age groups mix. Um, you know, so we, we've known throughout this pandemic for, for you know for over a year now that the main impacts have been you know in, in the elderly and and then in, in in people with with pre-existing conditions, but you know predominantly we saw it in the elderly and trying to understand how rapidly do we see spread from one age group to another. And, and I think that this pandemic, you know, it's been a terrible time in so many ways. But, you know, we, we, we do have we will have going forward, you know, a lot of really interesting data that we can use to to parameterize our models. Um, people, we're going to have a better understanding of, of flu, for example, than, than probably we've ever had before. Um, and hope, fingers crossed, uh, hopefully we won't have to study another pandemic in my lifetime. Uh, but, you know, if, if it's coming, we'll, we'll be ready. We hope so. Daniel, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Daniel Coombs is a UBC professor in mathematics and has extensive work in modeling disease and trying to figure out where this thing going. And he said, yeah, we are in for a rough six weeks or so as we sort out these numbers and get more people vaccinated and make sure we stay to the restrictions. And I think especially post spring break, right? Those cases still haven't been factored in. That's still going to come. I think next week is probably going to be a, a rough week on that front.